Chapter Sixteen of the Autobiography of Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Autobiography of Anthony Trollope. Beverly. Very early in life, very soon after I had become a clerk in St. Martin's Le Grand, when I was utterly impecunious and beginning to fall grievously into debt, I was asked by an uncle of mine, who was himself a clerk in the war office, what destination I should like best for my future life. He probably meant to inquire whether I wished to live married or single, whether to remain in the post office or to leave it, whether I should prefer the town or the country. I replied that I should like to be Member of Parliament. My uncle, who was given to sarcasm, rejoined that, as far he knew, few clerks in the post office did become members of Parliament. I think it was the remembrance of this jeer which stirred me up to look for a seat as soon as I had made myself capable of holding one by leaving the public service. My uncle was dead, but if I could get a seat, the knowledge that I had done so might travel to that bourne from whence he was not likely to return, and he might there feel that he had done me wrong. Independently of this, I have always thought that to sit in the British Parliament should be the highest object of ambition to every educated Englishman. I do not by this mean to suggest that every educated Englishman should set before himself a seat in Parliament as a probable or even a possible career, but that the man in Parliament has reached a higher position than the man out, that to serve one's country without pay is the grandest work that a man can do, that of all studies the study of politics is the one in which a man may make himself most useful to his fellow creatures, and that of all lives public political lives are capable of the highest efforts. So thinking, though I was aware that fifty-three was too late an age at which to commence a new career, I resolved with much hesitation that I would make the attempt. Writing now at an age beyond sixty, I can say that my political feelings and convictions have never undergone any change. They are now what they became when I first began to have political feelings and convictions. Nor do I find in myself any tendency to modify them as I have found generally in men as they grow old. I consider myself to be an advanced, but still a conservative liberal, which I regard not only as a possible, but as a rational and consistent phase of political existence. I can, I believe, in a very few words, make known my political theory, and, as I am anxious that any who know aught of me should know that, I will endeavor to do so. It must, I think, be painful to all men to feel inferiority. It should, I think, be a matter of some pain to all men to feel superiority, unless when it has been won by their own efforts. We do not understand the operations of Almighty Wisdom, and are therefore unable to tell the causes of the terrible inequalities that we see why some why so many should have so little to make life enjoyable so much to make it painful while a few others not through their own merit have had gifts poured out to them from a full hand we acknowledge the hand of god and his wisdom but still we are struck with awe and horror at the misery of many of our brethren we who have been born to the superior condition 
for in this matter i consider myself to be standing on a platform with dukes and princes and all others to whom plenty and education and liberty have been given cannot i think look upon the inane unintellectual and tossed-bound life of those who cannot even feed themselves sufficiently by their sweat without some feeling of injustice some feeling of pain this consciousness of wrong has induced in many enthusiastic but unbalanced minds a desire to set all things right by a proclaimed equality in their efforts such men have shown how powerless they are in opposing the ordinances of the creator for the mind of the thinker and the student is driven to admit though it be awestruck by apparent injustice that this inequality is the work of god make all men equal to-day and god has so created them that they shall be unequal to-morrow the so-called conservative the conscientious philanthropic conservative seeing this and being surely convinced that such inequalities are of divine origin tells himself that it is his duty to preserve them he thinks that the preservation of the welfare of the world depends on the maintenance of those distances between the prince and the peasant by which he finds himself to be surrounded and perhaps i may add that the duty is not unpleasant as he feels himself to be one of the princes but this man though he sees something and sees that very clearly sees only a little the divine inequality is apparent to him but not the equally divine diminution of that inequality that such diminution is taking place on all sides is apparent enough but it is apparent to him as an evil the consummation of which it is his duty to retard he cannot prevent it and therefore the society to which he belongs is in his eyes retrograding he will even at times assist it and will do so conscientiously feeling that under the gentle pressure supplied by him and with the drags and holdfasts which he may add the movement would be slower than it would become if subjected to his proclaimed and absolute opponents such i think are conservatives and i speak of men who with the fear of god before their eyes and their love of their neighbours warm in their hearts endeavour to do their duty to the best of their ability using the term which is now common and which will be best understood i will endeavour to explain how the equally conscientious liberal is opposed to the conservative he is equally aware that these distances are of divine origin equally averse to any sudden disruption of society in quest of some utopian blessedness but he is alive to the fact that these distances are day by day becoming less and he regards this continual diminution as a series of steps towards that human millennium of which he dreams he is even willing to help the many to ascend the ladder a little though he knows as they come up towards him he must go down to meet them what is really in his mind is i will not say equality for the word is offensive and presents to the imagination of men ideas of communism of ruin and insane democracy but a tendency towards equality in following that however he knows that he must be hemmed in by safeguards lest he be tempted to travel too quickly and therefore he is glad to be accompanied on his way by the repressive action of a conservative opponent holding such views i think i am guilty of no absurdity in calling myself an advanced conservative liberal 
a man who entertains in his mind any political doctrine except as a means of improving the condition of his fellows i regard as a political intriguer a charlatan and a conjurer as one who thinks that by a certain amount of wary wire-pulling he may raise himself in the estimation of the world i am aware that this theory of politics will seem to many to be stilted overstrained and as the americans would say highfalutin many will declare that the majority even of those who call themselves politicians perhaps even of those who take an active part in politics are stirred by no such feelings as these and acknowledge no such motives men become tories or whigs liberals or conservatives partly by education following their fathers partly by chance partly as openings come partly in accordance with the bent of their minds but still without any far-fetched reasonings as to distances and the diminution of distances no doubt it is so and in the battle of politics as it goes men are led further and further away from first causes till at last a measure is opposed by one simply because it is advocated by another and members of parliament swarm into lobbies following the dictation of their leaders and not their own individual judgments but the principle is at work throughout to many though hardly acknowledged it is still apparent on almost all it has its effect though there are the intriguers the clever conjurers to whom politics is simply such a game as is billiards or rackets only played with greater results to the minds that create and lead and sway political opinion some such theory is i think ever present the truth of all this i had long since taken home to myself i had now been thinking of it for thirty years and had never doubted but i had always been aware of a certain visionary weakness about myself in regard to politics a man to be useful in parliament must be able to confine himself and conform himself to be satisfied with doing a little bit of a little thing at a time he must patiently get up everything connected with the duty on mushrooms and then be satisfied with himself when at last he has induced a chancellor of the exchequer to say that he will consider the impost at the first opportunity he must be content to be beaten six times in order that on a seventh his work may be found to be of assistance to someone else he must remember that he is one out of six hundred fifty and be content with one six hundred fiftieth part of the attention of the nation if he have grand ideas he must keep them to himself unless by chance he can work his way up to the top of the tree in short he must be a practical man now i knew that in politics i could never become a practical man i should never be satisfied with a soft word from the chancellor of the exchequer but would always be flinging my overtaxed ketchup in his face nor did it seem to me to be possible that i should ever become a good speaker i had no special gifts that way and had not studied the art early enough in life to overcome natural difficulties i had found that with infinite labor i could learn a few sentences by heart and deliver them monotonously indeed but clearly or again if there were something special to be said i could say it in a commonplace fashion but always as though i were in a hurry and with the fear before me of being thought to be a prolix but i had no power of combining as a public speaker should always do that which i had studied with that which occurred to me at the moment it must be all lesson which i found to be best 
or else all impromptu, which was very bad indeed, unless I had something special on my mind. I was thus aware that I could do no good by going into Parliament, that the time for it, if there could have been a time, had gone by. But still, I had an almost insane desire to sit there, and be able to assure myself that my uncle's scorn had not been deserved. In 1867 it had been suggested to me that in the event of a dissolution I should stand for one division of the county of Essex, and I had promised that I would do so, though the promise at that time was as rash a one as a man could make. I was instigated to this by the late Charles Buxton, a man whom I greatly loved, and who was very anxious that the county for which his brother had sat, and with which the family were connected, should be relieved from what he regarded as the thraldom of Toryism. But there was no dissolution then. Mr. Disraeli passed his reform bill by the help of the Liberal member for Newark, and the summoning of a new Parliament was postponed till the next year. By this new reform bill Essex was portioned out into three instead of two electoral divisions, one of which, that adjacent to London, would, it was thought, be altogether liberal. After the promise which I had given, the performance of which would have cost me a large sum of money absolutely in vain, it was felt by some that I should be selected as one of the candidates for the new division, and as such I was proposed by Mr. Charles Buxton. But another gentleman, who would have been bound by previous pledges to support me, was put forward by what I believe to have been the defeating interest, and I had to give way. At the election this gentleman, with another liberal, who had often stood for the county, was returned without a contest. Alas, alas, they were both unseated at the next election, when the great conservative reaction took place. In the spring of 1868 I was sent to the United States on a postal mission, of which I will speak presently. While I was absent the dissolution took place. On my return I was somewhat too late to look out for a seat, but I had friends who knew the weakness of my ambition, and it was not likely, therefore, that I should escape the peril of being put forward for some impossible borough, as to which the Liberal Party would not choose that it should go to the Conservatives without a struggle. At last, after one or two others, Beverly was proposed to me, and to Beverly I went. I must, however, exculpate the gentleman who acted as my agent from undue persuasion exercised towards me. He was a man who thoroughly understood Parliament, having sat there himself, and he sits there now at this moment. He understood Yorkshire, or at least the East Riding of Yorkshire, in which Beverley is situated, certainly better than any one alive. He understood all the mysteries of canvassing, and he knew well the traditions, the condition, and the prospect of the Liberal Party. I will not give his name, but they who knew Yorkshire in 1868 will not be at a loss to find it. So, said he, you are going to stand for Beverly? I replied gravely that I was thinking of doing so. You don't expect to get in, he said. Again, I was grave. I would not, I said, be sanguine, but nevertheless I was disposed to hope for the best. Oh, no, continued he, with good-humoured raillery, you won't get in. I don't suppose you really expect it, but there is a fine career open to you. You will spend a thousand and lose the election. Then you will petition and spend another thousand. You will throw out the elected members. There will be a commission, and the borough will be disfranchised. For a beginner such as you are, that will be a great success. And yet, in the teeth of this, from a man who knew all about it, I persisted in going to Beverly. 
the borough which returned two members had long been represented by sir henry edwards of whom i think i am justified in saying that he had contracted a close intimacy with it for the sake of the seat there had been many contests many petitions many void elections many members but through it all sir henry had kept his seat if not with permanence yet with a fixity of tenure next door to permanence i fancy that with a little management between the parties the borough might at this time have returned a member of each colour quietly but there were spirits there who did not love political quietude and it was at last decided that there should be two liberal and two conservative candidates sir henry was joined by a young man of fortune in quest of a seat and i was grouped with mr maxwell the eldest son of lord harry's a scotch roman catholic peer who lives in the neighbourhood when the time came i went down to canvas and spent i think the most wretched fortnight of my manhood in the first place i was subject to a bitter tyranny from grinding vulgar tyrants they were doing what they could or said that they were doing so to secure me a seat in parliament and i was to be in their hands at any rate the period of my candidature on one day both of us mr maxwell and i wanted to go out hunting we proposed to ourselves but the one holiday during this period of intense labour but i was assured as was he also by a publican who was working for us that if we committed such a crime he and all beverley would desert us from morning to evening every day i was taken round the lanes and byways of that uninteresting town canvassing every voter exposed to the rain up to my knees in slush and utterly unable to assume that air of triumphant joy with which a jolly successful candidate should be invested at night every night i had to speak somewhere which was bad and to listen to the speaking of others which was much worse when on one sunday i proposed to go to the minster church i was told that was quite useless as the church party were all certain to support sir henry indeed said the publican my tyrant he goes there in a kind of official profession and you'd better not allow yourself to be seen in the same place so i stayed away and omitted my prayers no church of england church in beverley would on such an occasion have welcomed a liberal candidate i felt myself to be a kind of pariah in the borough to whom was opposed all that was pretty and all that was nice and all that was ostensibly good but perhaps my strongest sense of discomfort arose from the conviction that my political ideas were all leather and prunella to the men whose votes i was soliciting they cared nothing for my doctrines and could not be made to understand that i should have any i had been brought to beverley either to beat sir henry edwards which however no one probably thought to be feasible or to cause him the greatest possible amount of trouble inconvenience and expense there were indeed two points on which a portion of my wished-for supporters seemed to have opinions and on both these points i was driven by my opinions to oppose them some were anxious for the ballot which had not then become law and some desired the permissive bill i hated and do hate both these measures thinking it to be unworthy of a great people to free itself from the evil results of vicious conduct by unmanly restraints undue influence on voters is a great evil from which this country had already done much to emancipate itself by extending electoral divisions and by an increase of independent feeling these i thought and not secret voting were the weapons by which electoral intimidation should be overcome and as for drink i believe in no parliamentary restraint but i do believe in the gradual effect of moral teaching and education 
but a liberal to do any good at Beverly should have been able to swallow such gnats as those. I would swallow nothing and was altogether the wrong man. I knew from the commencement of my candidature how it would be. Of course, that well-trained gentleman who condescended to act as my agent had understood the case, and I ought to have taken his thoroughly kind advice. He had seen it all, and had told himself that it was wrong that one so innocent in such ways as I, so utterly unable to fight such a battle, should be carried down into Yorkshire merely to spend money and to be annoyed. He could not have said more than he did say, and I suffered for my obstinacy. Of course I was not elected. Sir Henry Edwards and his comrade became members for Beverly, and I was at the bottom of the poll. I paid four hundred for my expenses, and then returned to London. My friendly agent, in his raillery, had of course exaggerated the cost. He had, when I arrived at Beverly, asked me for a check for four hundred, and told me that the sum would suffice. It did suffice. How it came to pass that exactly that sum should be required, I never knew, but such was the case. Then there came a petition, not from me, but from the town. The inquiry was made, and two gentlemen were unseated. The borough was disfranchised. Sir Henry Edwards was put on his trial for some kind of parliamentary offence, and was acquitted. In this way, Beverly's privilege as a borough and my parliamentary ambition were brought to an end at the same time. When I knew the result, I did not altogether regret it. It may be that Beverly might have been brought to political confusion, and Sir Henry Edwards relegated to private life without the expenditure of my hard-earned money, and without that fortnight of misery. But, connecting the things together, as it was natural that I should do, I did flatter myself that I had done some good. It had seemed to me that nothing could be worse, nothing more unpatriotic, nothing more absolutely opposed to the system of representative government than the time-honored practices of the borough of Beverly. It had come to pass that political cleanliness was odious to the citizens. There was something grand in the scorn with which a leading liberal there turned up his nose at me when I told him that there should be no bribery, no treating, not even a pot of beer on one side. It was a matter for study to see how at Beverly politics were appreciated because they might subserve electoral purposes and how little it was understood that electoral purposes, which are in themselves a nuisance, should be endured in order that they may subserve politics. And then the time, the money, the mental energy which had been expended in making the borough a secure seat for a gentleman who had realized the idea that it would become him to be a member of Parliament. This use of the borough seemed to be realized and approved in the borough generally. The inhabitants had taught themselves to think that it was for such purposes that boroughs were intended. To have assisted in putting an end to this, even in one town, was, to a certain extent, a satisfaction. End of chapter 16 Recording by Jessica Louise, Minneapolis, Minnesota